All right, well, if you have your Bible ready, I'll pull myself together here a little bit. Uh, please do open it up to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. The ushers are coming forward. They have a Bible to pass out to you if you need one, as well as pencils and, a, and an outline of the sermon that I've prepared for us today. I'm, I'm happy, actually, that we have arrived in this chapter now, uh, even now here at the beginning of 2022. This is a very important place in 1 Corinthians. It's perhaps one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture, and it certainly is the most important chapter in this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. The, the topic set forth here in the text is, is one on which the whole of Christianity is actually hanging upon, uh, the doctrine of the resurrection. And the text that we have before us this morning, it's what it's doing, just we're going to look at the first four verses. What it does is it lays the groundwork for the rest of the arguments that the Apostle Paul is going to make as he continues through this whole chapter. And he's going to say some necessary things, some important and necessary things this morning, as well, and as we'll see later on throughout the chapter. So let's read our passage, and then we'll ask the Lord to bless our time in his word this morning through prayer. The, the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word, beginning at verse 1 in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are good. And we thank you for your word, which is also good. It tells us of who you are and what it is that you have done and, and how it is that we should live. And most of all, it explains the redemption that has been made in Christ. And so we ask, Lord God, that you would help us to hear Christ preached. I certainly, Lord, don't want to preach myself. I know that would do nobody any good. And so we desire to have Christ exalted in our lives. Help us, Lord, to pay attention well. Help us to understand, Holy Spirit. We depend upon you and ask for your help this morning. May you be exalted and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so as I was saying a moment ago, I don't think that we can overstate the importance of this chapter. Uh, a couple of years back, I was at an Exalting Christ uh, Bible Conference, which is usually held out in Vallejo, and Mike Abendroth is one of the speakers that year. He's a pastor, and he's, a, he's published a few books, and he has a good podcast that I usually try to recommend. But I, I ran into him in the book sale lobby in between some of the sessions, and I mustered up the courage to say something to him, which is rare for me. I usually don't talk to the, the speakers at these conferences, the other pastors. And I asked him what it was that he was going to be teaching on that evening. And his response to me was, and it came with a little bit of snark, which I appreciated, was that he was going to preach Christ from every Christian's favorite chapter. And he said that it's the chapter that if you just threw your Bible down on the table, it would just open right up to it because, you know, every Christian spends so much time studying there. And then he waited 
and acted like I was supposed to know what he meant. And so like immediately, I regretted mustering up that courage to talk to him. And so I start like, doing all the calculations in my head. Well, it's got to be Romans or Hebrews or Ephesians, Galatians. Sorry if I missed your favorite you know, book of the Bible. But then I just had to get out of there. So I said, okay, well, I've been praying for you, and I'm looking forward to it. And then when he gets up to preach, he has us open to, of course, you can guess it, 1 Corinthians 15. So this is a, an important passage, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to seeing what the Lord will do in the life of our congregation and us individually, as well as we study the things that are going to be, to be said here. And the apostle here in this chapter, he's making a building and escalating case on the doctrine of the resurrection. And this is somewhat of a change in direction from what he's been doing uh, for the saints in Corinth and for us as well, too. I say somewhat because he's briefly touched on some of the things that he's going to mention here throughout the letter. But this is certainly a stark change in from what we were dealing with from 12 to 14, where he was addressing the sign gifts and the abuse of the sign gifts really in the Corinthian congregation. No longer is the apostle now focused on those sign gifts, but he's narrowing in now on something that is what we would say definitional for Christianity and or what we would also call like a, a first tier doctrine issue. In other words, one that is foundational to the Christian faith, one that if rejected at the end of the day would mean ultimately that you are rejecting Christianity. And we may even say that truly believing this doctrine is a sign that the Lord has done a saving work in you. Meaning, in other words, that if professing believers disagree about the specific matter of the resurrection, then there should be division and separation among them. That fellowship should be broken. That this is a salvation issue. And the matter that the apostle addresses now with that sort of mindset is resurrection. Now, I'm not saying that it should immediately be that separation, but it has to be worked out, it has to be discussed. And if people are going to dig their heels on and reject the plain teaching of what Scripture says, what the apostles put forward based off of the teaching of Christ, then that is something worth dividing over. And so Paul is writing this now so as to hopefully prevent that and offer some correction to the church. John MacArthur says that Christianity is the religion of the resurrection. And the Apostle Paul is going to deal with this issue of resurrection in three categories. First, he establishes the resurrection of Christ. That's really through verse 11 in chapter 15. And then he is so, in, in doing so, he associates the resurrection with the gospel. The point being, there is no gospel, there is no good news if Jesus is not resurrected. That's the connection or the implication we might uh, see early on this morning even. And then he makes the case that the dead will be resurrected. And that's part of the specific problem in this chapter. If you have your Bible open, look down at verse 12. Uh, verse 12 says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Right, that's the problem that the Apostle Paul is addressing here at this point. And then look how serious and important the topic is. Look down a little further in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all of all people to be most pitied. So that's how serious this matter is, again, I said that if you're going to dig your heels down in on this topic and reject the plain teaching of Scripture, it means something about your profession of faith. Now, 
Um, this is really important for us to grasp even early on in the Christian life. You know, if Christ is not raised, then nothing else matters. It wouldn't matter if you are a disciple of Christ. It wouldn't matter what Jesus had ultimately said. It wouldn't matter what Jesus did in his life if he was not resurrected. If Jesus didn't defeat death, nothing else matters. Now, we are wasting our time here even this Sunday morning, and he's going to make essentially that point uh, later on in this chapter. Now, we may be inclined to think that, well, Every Christian believes that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, that he was risen from the dead. So what's the big deal? And there is an element of truth to that, of course. Every true Christian believes it most certainly. But here in Corinth, there was clearly a group of people who professed Christ and yet denied the resurrection. And that could be because some of them were just immature in their thinking. They were young or converts, new converts, and they hadn't really grasped the implications of these things. Or it could be that they had actually you know, thought it through and they said, no, this is not actually true. And so Paul is helping us and he's helping that congregation there to figure out what is going on actually with these matters. But, and we'll speculate on this as to those reasons in coming sermons, I'm sure. But even now, you need to be aware, brothers and sisters, that there are people out there in Christ's churches today, or at least professing churches, who deny the resurrection. In 2017, the BBC published a poll that had been taken in the UK. And in this poll, 25% of professing Christians said they didn't believe in the question, or in the resurrection. One-fourth of professing Christians polled in the UK in 2017 said they believed the resurrection was a myth, that it actually didn't happen, and yet they claimed to take the name of Christ. Even more recently and more locally to us, uh, Ligonier is a, is a ministry based out of Florida, and every two years they publish something called the State of Theology. In 2020, they put out the last one, and there they asked, they posed the question to the survey takers, um, was the, did Christ really rise from the grave? And only 45% of Christians strongly agreed with it that they, only 45% of Christians strongly agreed that Christ was risen, meaning then that 55% of professing Christians either were on a scale of they disagreed that he was resurrected or they somewhat agreed with it or they were not sure. So according to this poll, at least, the majority of professing Christians, even here in the United States, are unclear about the resurrection and they don't see the importance of it. So this is a modern problem as well, friends. And if we're going to consider it properly, which we will over the few, next few weeks, we need to begin where the Apostle Paul does, with the gospel, with the good news. Because the resurrection is married to it. If our gospel stops at the burial of Christ, then our gospel is not only incomplete, but it's no gospel at all. But since Jesus did rise from the grave with a glorified body, it's a testimony to the reality that he is God in the flesh and that all that he said was actually, in fact, true. And therefore, of course, Christianity is true. But if there is no resurrection and there's a body somewhere out in a tomb where nobody knows, then Christianity collapses and it can't be true. You realize that, I hope, church. Have you thought much about the resurrection? the centrality of it to your faith. This chapter will certainly cause us to do so. 
B.B. Warfield was right when he said the resurrection is the cardinal doctrine of Christianity. On it, all other doctrines hang. So, let's consider what it was, what it is that the Apostle Paul says here in our text. We'll begin with verse 1, and we read there that he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Let's stop there for just a moment. The apostle is wanting to remind the Corinthians, not because they've forgotten the gospel. I mean, listen, if you are a Christian, how is it that you can forget the gospel? I mean, even if you have a lower view of it than someone else, the gospel is the very means by which you have life. How, How can that be? Forgotten? How could a Christian totally forget about it? And further, it's evident by the text that at least some of them haven't forgotten about it, like in the way that we might forget, like our email password or something like that, uh, because of what he says following this, that some have received it, some are standing it, and some are holding fast to it. More on that in a moment. But probably as well, some have forgotten about it in a typical fashion, Uh, But that would have to do more with them believing in vain, which he also says here, and we'll deal with that in a moment as well, too. It would seem, then, that the apostles' call for them to remember is actually a literary technique to really get their attention because of the importance of the subject matter that he is dealing with. It's similar to what he said previously in the in the chapter right before this, in verse 38. There he says, If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. In other words, what he's saying to the Corinthian church and to us is, is, hey, please take note of what I'm saying now. What I'm about to say to you is something that you should know already because I preached it to you. But there's a problem because some among you are rejecting this and it's essential. And of course, we know what that thing is. It's the resurrection. He's going to get to that. But he's building up to that. and He's wanting to make the case that this is what the church has always believed. This isn't something to debate about. As Gordon Fee points out, the apostle isn't seeking to prove the resurrection in this chapter. He's actually, he's here in the opening verses of the chapter, he is reasserting the commonly held ground from which he will argue against their assertion that there is no resurrection of the dead. So he's appealing to what the church has always believed, what they first taught, and the resurrection is central and a part of that. And the first thing then to do is to get their attention and remind them about the gospel that was preached to them. To be clear about what the gospel is and what it means to profess and believe and hold it. There is an importance, a first importance even, of remembering the gospel. Of having our attention on the gospel and the different elements of it. And by the way, I'm holding off on speaking about the gospel specifically until we get to verse 3, since that's where the apostle speaks about it in concise terms. But now, it's important to note something else in this first verse, that there is a a pastoral and gracious tone to the apostles bringing up of this final issue worthy of confrontation here in the letter. Did you notice that in that first verse, he calls them brothers? He, He tells them, I want to remind you, brothers. He's giving a charitable view of the genuineness of the the genuineness of the majority of the saints in Corinth of their profession of faith, even in light of the serious matter that is at hand. And this is a gospel issue. Now, we, people like to talk about things being a gospel issue all the time. This is truly a gospel issue without any doubt. 
he's attaching this matter of the resurrection to the gospel he preached, very much like how he associated the issue in Galatia with the Judaizers and their perversion of the gospel he preached to them. But he speaks to the Corinthian church much differently. Let's look at this. Turn with me in your Bible to Galatians chapter 3. Should be very easy, just a book over. Look at how he addresses... Now, he preached the gospel to the church in Galatia as well. And they have an error that impacts the gospel. But look how he speaks to them. Chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That's much different than how he's addressing the church in Corinth, isn't it? O foolish Galatians. Certainly, there were real believers in Galatia. Uh, yet these believers had let the Judaizers infiltrate the church, and they, in doing that, they subverted the gospel. And it demanded a strong response. He goes on to say, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. In other words, the gospel was preached to them. He's speaking of preaching the gospel. He's associating here in Galatia, just like he did in Corinth, the preaching of the gospel with the issue that the church is experiencing and the danger that it's putting the church in. The same thing he's doing in Corinth. And notice this as well then, brothers and sisters. The preaching of the gospel is what establishes the church. That's why the apostle Paul is addressing these matters in this way. It's not the charisma or even the character of the pastors. It's not the programs you have in place. It's not your engagement with the culture. Those things all matter and they're important. But they aren't by themselves what builds the church. The gospel builds the church. It is the word of God, the preached word of God that exalts Christ, who he is, what he has done to redeem sinners. And, God's, and it's God's gospel. We don't get to tamper with it. We don't get to make improvements upon it. We can't make improvements upon it. We don't get to take anything away from it because this is God's gospel. And you get the gospel wrong and the church can't be built. Something else is built in its stead, a vain and false religion ultimately. And yet, the response in Galatia and Corinth is different. He's firm with the Galatians and he's more gentle with the Corinthians, even though both errors will shipwreck a person's faith. Why is this? Why is there this difference? Well, the Galatian issue and the Corinthian issue, they both matter, and they're both serious gospel issues, but there is a difference in the character of the churches themselves. Pastor Kim Riddlebarger, that's a man, by the way, he, he notes the Corinthians were struggling to work through those truths they had initially embraced, and they were struggling with Christian maturity, trying to leave behind non-Christian ways of thinking and doing. But that's not the case with Galatia. It wasn't a maturity issue in Galatia. They had allowed false teachers to come in, and they were um, helping them and, and endorsing them. And brothers and sisters, we need to have this same sort of distinction in our thoughts as well. Uh, the same kind of distinction present in our minds when we think about people either in this congregation or whole other congregations as a whole. The Apostle Paul addresses the Corinthians with grace and patience. Meaning that a church, and of course, I mean, think of, again, this Corinthian church. We know some of their sins. Gross immorality, uh, division, factionism. They, they had many struggles that we know about. But that tells us something. 
that it's one thing to deal with Christians who are struggling sinners, with believers who are in need of maturity, and it's a whole other thing to entirely deny the gospel and tolerate those who do so. These are, these are brothers here in Corinth. They are mostly new to the faith, and he's reminding them of the gospel because being reminded of the gospel is important when you're struggling with maturity and obedience and belief in the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. And it's not to say that everyone in the Corinthian church was a believer. That, that's going to be te- uh, tethered out, just an immature believer. That's going to be further tethered out as we go through this chapter and even our, this, this morning. But there's a, there's a different way in which we have to deal with professing Christians depending upon what stage of sanctification they are at or should be at, how they respond to the correction. The church in Galatia was far beyond the church in Corinth in their error. And so that's the, the difference between these two churches. And so now the Apostle Paul speaks of this gospel in two um, sets of threes. First, he speaks about the individual's response to the gospel in a set of three, and then there's two qualifiers. And then he speaks of a concise and simple gospel in a set of three, also with two qualifiers. So let's consider the first set of threes that we find in our text. So the the apostle reminds them of the gospel that was preached to them, and here's what it did in the individual members of the Corinthian congregation. Three things. Number one, it was received. They received this message that he preached to them. The implication here is that it was received gladly. It certainly wasn't rejected, for if so, they wouldn't be a part of the church, right? If you have the gospel preached to you and you don't receive it, you just reject it, well, you're not going to church on the Lord's Day. You're out doing your own thing. But it's also not like they received it and then simply neglected it either. When a person truly receives the gospel, it is a message that changes everything. It takes them out of darkness and places them into God's marvelous light. It's not a message that one is indifferent to when it's received gladly. You were at one time the enemy of God, and now by God's grace you are his beloved child. It is the sovereign work of God in regenerating a rebel sinner and adopting them into the family of God, showing them to be numbered among the family of God as the Baptist Catechism says. That's what it means to receive the gospel that is preached. The words of the gospel, when they are received like this, are like what the psalmist says in Psalm 119. He says that your words, O Lord, are like sweet words, sweeter than honey to the mouth. It brings joy, this message. It brings true life change and hope. It brings peace. And in some ways, that happens instantaneously and then also God sovereignly ordains for that joy and that hope to increase over time, even through trials as well as victories as well. And so there is a, there is a past tense element to the gospel. It's something that is received. There's a specific point in time in which every person who truly believes receives it. And we receive it by grace through faith, all of that being a gift from God, not because of your works, as Ephesians 2.8 says. Uh, people who have received the gospel or a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17, and that receiving of the preached word then unites that individual to Yahweh, to Father, to Son, and to Spirit. And when the gospel is received in faith like this, it is what the benediction in Romans 15.13 says. It is the God of hope 
filling you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit in you, hope may abound. That, that is what it means when you receive this message. And, and of course, those people who receive it were chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. But everyone who is numbered among the elect receives the gospel in time and is converted at that time by a work of the Holy Spirit, making you into a new creation. Uh, receiving the gospel is the first step. It's a past event, but the gospel isn't finished with us at that point. There's also a present element to it. And so Paul says to them that the gospel he preached to them is also something in which they stand. So something they received, and it's something in which you stand. And you realize this, I hope, Christian, that you are presently standing in the gospel. I try to emphasize this often, that the gospel isn't something that one outgrows. It's not just a message you received in the past, and then you can just leave it there, and then go on to bigger and greater things. You see, there is nothing greater and bigger than the gospel and the substance of that message. There is nothing more essential to you and your life and your peace with God. And hear me, please, here. It is the gospel and the fact that you are presently standing in it that is keeping you right now reconciled to God. It's not your obedience or your lack thereof, uh, your obedience to the law and the law of love is not what is keeping you justified. You don't start with the gospel and then preserve your relationship with God through the law. It's the substance of the gospel and that alone which keeps you right with the Lord God Almighty. And of course, you should desire good works for the glory of God and the benefit of your church and even the benefit of the lost world. But you need to understand that even desiring and loving the law and doing good works is only possible because you're standing in the gospel. You're presently in the gospel. If you weren't standing and being preserved in the gospel, then you wouldn't even desire to do good works or you would desire them for the wrong reason, for your own glory rather than the glory of God Almighty. The gospel, for the one who truly believes, isn't just in your life powerfully in the past but it's also powerfully in your life right now, in the present. At every moment that your life ticks on, the gospel is powerfully present in your life. You see the importance of remembering the gospel here, I hope, even for the person who has been standing in it for decades. And it's easy for us, unfortunately, uh, for us, for people who are Samuel Eustace at Pecador, people who are righteous and at the same time sinners, to, to fall into sin, to fall into sinful mindsets and, and depraved thoughts and feelings, to fall into works-based mentalities, to fall into anxiety and worry, to fear the things in the world that a Christian has no business fearing, but remembering that, is, that it is the gospel in which you stand, that God Almighty is in love, sovereignly persevering you at every moment, proclaims to yourself what Romans 8, 1 through 2 says and fights against all of those sinful dispositions. The, the, the response when you're struggling with whatever it may be, whatever depraved mindset or sinful emotion or feeling that you're dealing with isn't to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just try harder. It's to remember that you are presently standing in the gospel because of what Romans 8, 1 to 2 says. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ. 
Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Remember that, brother and sister. Remember when the enemy is whispering in your ear and he's causing doubts. It's the gospel. It is the merits of and the person of Christ alone in which you stand. And what a place it is to stand in. Can Christ overcome all things? Is Jesus greater than me and any one of you? Are you secure in his hand? Yes, yes, and yes. It is the gospel in which you stand. And remembering that is important. What a joy and a blessing it is uh, to, to know those things. And then lastly, there's a future element to the gospel as well. The gospel isn't just good for you in the past and in the present, but also in the future. It is by which you are being saved. That verb in the, is in the present tense, mind you. So the idea is that the person who receives the gospel and is standing in the gospel is actively being saved presently by God until that final day. What a joy and a blessing it is, brothers and sisters, that on that final day, when you stand before Yahweh, you don't have to say, here, God, look at what I did. You don't have to say, here, God, I did the best with what you gave me. Those things do and, and will matter, but they are not the basis by which you are being saved. What you get to say in that moment, Christian, is this, Father, but if not for Christ, I don't belong here. It's Christ and Christ alone. It is his righteousness. It is his merits. We have the blessed pleasure of even renouncing all of our good works on account of our justification before the throne of God and relying on Christ and Christ alone. Even the, the very best of your righteous deeds, of my righteous deeds, they are like filthy rags in comparison to the lowest of deeds of Christ, who, whose works had no sin mingled with them whatsoever, not at all. So why look to anything else? There is nothing better. There is no one better. It's why the Holy Scriptures instruct us at numerous places to put on Christ. I think of Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, Galatians, to put on Christ, to put on the new self. Even now, even, even before we are on that last day, the gospel and Christ Jesus is the key to holiness. Union with him is everything. But then the apostle offers these two qualifiers at the end of verse 2. He says that the gospel preached to them, which they received and which they stand and by which they are being saved, that's all true. And then he says, if you hold fast to the word, the word meaning the message of the gospel, he's going to simplify that message in just a moment. And he says, if the message I preach to you, if you hold fast to it, unless you believed in vain. If you hold fast, unless you believed in vain. So let's consider that last clause first. In other words, unless you reject what you profess to believe which would of course mean that you didn't actually receive it when you thought you did, as 1 John would instruct us to think. The parable of the sower or the parable of the soils comes to mind, doesn't it? Uh, it's in Matthew 13, Mark 4, and Luke 8. We don't have time to look there now. But the parable asserts that the gospel message goes out, goes out into the world, and this very same message is received differently by different people. Some don't receive it at all. Three other kinds of people 
receive it, outwardly at least, and because of God's purposes and divine election in this parable, the gospel message ends up only taking root in one kind of person. The other two simply seem to receive it. And by the way, there's no actual difference between these people. It's just the providence and the decision of God's good pleasure about how one receives these things. But in those three categories of people who supposedly receive the message, two of them only seem to receive it, but it never takes root, and they were never actually changed. They believed in vain, in other words, what the apostle here is saying in 1 Corinthians 15, 2. They didn't truly receive it. And the apostle has to say this now in 1 Corinthians because there is a problem of people doing this very thing in Corinth, of believing in vain concerning a specific part of the gospel, the resurrection of Christ. And it's a damnable offense if they don't repent. And the same would be true of us, of course. If we who believe begin to believe some errant doctrine that compromises the gospel, or if we simply just stop believing, which is difficult to deal with this morning, that will damn us and condemn us to hell unless we repent while there is still time. Because at that point, it would mean that our belief, when we supposedly received it, wasn't actually belief. It was ultimately really unbelief. And it was belief in vain. Because at that point, what is revealed is that the object of our faith, when someone believes in vain, that it isn't the Christ of the gospel message that it's supposed to be. It's something else. A counterfeit, perhaps. An idol, certainly. And so even then, if we abandon the gospel in some sort, it means that our faith was in vain. After all, that's what the Apostle Paul is going to assert down in verse 14. And so Charles Hodge says here of this, he says, The gospel secures salvation unless faith be of no account. In other words, unless the faith is not a saving faith. Because that saving faith comes to us in the gospel. And if you don't have that saving faith, and faith is then of no account, like he says in verse 14, it's because it actually never came to you in the gospel. What you received was something that wasn't saving. It was something that ultimately was idolatrous, that was for your own benefit and not for the worship and the glory of the Lord. And so even then, or let me... Let me make, try to make sense of the first half of the clause, and then we'll put these two things together. He says that the Corinthians must hold fast to the word that was preached to them, meaning that they must cling to the true gospel and nothing else. He's going to define that in just a moment, what that true gospel is. And the same would be true for us, of course. We must cling, we must hold fast to the truth, but our hope isn't in us holding fast. It's in Christ holding us fast. But listen here, the apostle is not now all of a sudden describing some works principle. Nor is this a proof text saying that Christians may fall away from the faith, okay? It's neither one of those things. He's not saying that you contribute to your salvation by clinging to the true gospel, and he's not saying that a true believer can fall away from the faith. So what, he, what is he doing then? Well, it's something that he's done before in this letter to the Corinthians. He did this back in 1 Corinthians 10. It's something that Jude does in his epistle. It's something that the author of the letter to the Hebrews does famously a few times. It's in many places in the word, actually. And what it is simply, putting these two clauses together, uh, that you must hold fast unless you believed in vain, 
What it is, it's a warning from the law of God that will ultimately persevere a true believer and cause that person to repent and remember the gospel. Those who are truly Christ, in other words, they will heed this warning. The apostles' point is that it's through the gospel and only through the gospel, the whole gospel, that is, which includes the resurrection, that it's only through the gospel that anyone will be delivered from God's wrath. And so we must hold fast to that message that we received, the true gospel word, because it is only that which will save us. And if at some point you depart from that true gospel, the, the message that the apostles preached, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, the phrase like this here in God's word at the end of verse 2 is often the means that God uses to cause his saints to repent and to trust in the true gospel. Paragraph 5 in chapter 15 of the Second London Baptist Confession says this about God persevering us through repentance. It says, God has made full provision through Christ in the covenant of grace to preserve believers in their salvation. Thus, although there is no sin so small that is undeserving of damnation, yet there is no sin so great that it will bring damnation on those who repent. This makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary. And so the apostle is giving those Corinthians who are in error about the resurrection an invitation to repent here by, by letting them know that they are supposed to hold fast to the truth that he preached unless they believed in vain. He's offering them who have now rejected the doctrine of the resurrection a, an opportunity to repent and to remember the gospel because it is the gospel that they received in which they stand and by which they will be saved. And that gospel message contains in it the resurrection of Christ. It's essential. That's what this warning is meaning to accomplish. It doesn't teach that a saved person can lose their salvation and it doesn't teach that you contribute to your salvation. But it's a warning to wake you up and to make you remember the true Christ and his gospel that you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. And the same would be true for any of us, friends. Have you left Christ to find joy in the world? Have you denied some aspect of Christ, his standard of holiness, perhaps, creating then a Christ in your own image? Is your burden heavy because you've been counting on your performance to be right before God? If so, the invitation is here in God's word for you to repent. Repent and hold fast. In other words, believe in the true gospel that the apostles preach because there your belief is not in vain. There your faith is not in vain. And praise be to God because again, we know that because God is sovereign and that he is the one who does the saving from start all the way to finish that those who are truly Christ will heed such warnings. When we hear news, like we heard this morning with my brother-in-law, it's hard. It's, it's sad. I wish it didn't happen. But our hope is not in, in Zach to make a good decision. Our hope is in the Lord, who will not lose any of his elect. And if Zach is numbered among them, we know he'll repent in return. And the same goes to you and anyone in your family whom I have at one point been trusting in the Lord and has, has left. We don't know how long God keeps people on those paths in which they wander. But we can be certain that even in those times, if they truly are among the elect, he will draw them back. That is his promise to his people, and he is faithful. And it's often messages like this in God's word 
that cause us to pursue that sort of repentance. So let's look at this gospel message that he presents here beginning at verse 3. And it gives a very succinct gospel message. It's short, it's clear, it's biblical. He can say more, of course, and he definitely does elsewhere. But what he offers here is instructive for us and for the Corinthians, of course. The gospel is no less than what is said in verse 3 and 4. And some in the Corinthian church have actually made it less than that. Now, simply talking about the gospel and engaging others with it can be a confusing endeavor at some times. I mean, even think of this yourself. If someone was to come up to you today and say, what is the gospel? Right on the spot. How would you respond? Would you be ready for that? You know, in my, in my own experience with evangelism, uh, you get all kinds of answers. I've heard people say that it's a music genre. I've heard people say that it, there, there are books in the Bible, and those things are true, of course, but they're not the answer that I was looking for. Uh, some people will say that the gospel is that God loves you, and certainly that's an aspect of it, but it doesn't actually explain what the gospel is. And we need to be able to explain what it is, friends. If you want to think of it simply, you could just think of it as the message which Christ which explains what Jesus Christ did to save sinners. Or you could just offer what the apostle does here in verse 3 and 4. Let's read that again. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Well, that, that's the gospel. It's very simple and concise. Again, you can say much more than that, but that is certainly a, an answer that one could give. Now, simply talking about, um, again, what I want to say is simply just saying that, I mean, you leave some things unsaid when you say that. There's obviously much more that could be said about the gospel, and the Apostle Paul does say a lot more at other parts in his letters, but of all of the depths of the riches that you could plumb in thinking about and talking about the gospel, they're even contained in this short little phrase that the Apostle mentions here in the letter to the Corinthian congregation. What he accomplishes in a short phrase like this is actually a lot. And the structure of Paul's formation of the gospel here, including verse 5, which we didn't read, many believers actually think that this structure, these verses 3 to 5, are actually an ancient creed in the church. That this passage, that we read the first two verses of it, are part of something that the early church committed to memory to help them evangelize and to help guard them from error. And something that could be easily committed to memory for the furtherance of the message itself. And look at the priority that's given in this gospel message. The message of first importance. Of all the things that the apostle has addressed in his letter to the Corinthians, they were all important, they were all necessary, all those words needed to be said. But this is of first importance. If the gospel is wrong, if the gospel is compromised in other words, then there's no way to faithfully deal with those other matters that he already brought up. The gospel of Christ is an issue of first importance, and it's a message that the apostles didn't create themselves. They didn't make this up. The apostle Paul didn't devise this idea of a Messiah coming to die for our sins and then being buried and resurrected on the third day. This is a message that he himself also received. Again, this is God's gospel, and we are privileged and blessed to be able to share it with all that we come in contact with. And so we can sum up this great message with what John MacArthur calls the two great facts of the gospel, or what Gordon Fee calls the primary tenets of our faith. And that is, number one, Christ's death for our sins, and number two, Christ's resurrection. 
Christ died for our sins. That's the first great statement. And it's atonement language, isn't it? Christ Jesus didn't just die for any old reason. He didn't die because he's a man and that's what men do. He died for our sins. He died to make atonement, to satisfy the catalog of, that our sins demanded. And so we should think of this in two ways, church, with two different terms. These are technical words. One of them appears in Scripture. The other one doesn't, but the idea of it certainly is there. And let's consider the term we find in God's Word first, and that would be propitiation. When we're thinking of the atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, one aspect of that is what we call propitiation. And that means that God's wrath has been satisfied. Not just God the Father, mind you, but God Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus' death for sin on the cross propitiated the wrath of Yahweh for the elect. 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent His Son to satisfy the wrath that our sins deserved. How did He do that? By dying upon a cross. The issue is very simple, isn't it? The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 Death comes about from God's righteousness. His holiness is the cause that wrath is displayed when it's necessary. And that wrath will be poured out because God is righteous and just. And we either pay it ourselves or it was paid by Christ. That is what is meant by propitiation. That Jesus satisfied the wrath that we were supposed to pay. The wrath that we deserve. And therefore, we won't receive it, and we won't receive any condemnation because we are in Christ Jesus, and Jesus paid it all, as we sang earlier this morning as well. And the second aspect, the second technical term, is what's called expiation. So you have propitiation, and then you have expiation. And these terms, expiation and propitiation, are close related. But whereas propitiation is the act of Christ satisfying the punishment our sins deserve, expiation explains the removal of those sins from us. In other words, because the punishment our sin deserves has been satisfied, because it has been propitiated, then it is as if our sins have left us from God's point of view. Think of Psalm 103, verse 12. It says, As far from the east is from the west, so far does the Lord remove our transgressions from us. That's expiation. Or Micah 7 19 in which we read, the Lord will tread our iniquities underfoot and he will cast all our sins into the depths of the seas. That's expiation. Or think of Leviticus 16 and perhaps the explanation of the, the day of the atonement. This is a, a type of the atonement the anti-type being fulfilled in Christ. So on, as Leviticus 16 says, on the day of atonement there would be two goats and one goat would be for the Lord and it would be sacrificed. That's propitiation. The other goat would have the sins of the people symbolically transferred to it. And then it would be put out from the camp to go wander off into the wilderness. That's expiation. This, the atonement is, is covered in those two different categories. And we're going to skip over the part about this happening according to the scriptures for now and deal with that in just a moment. But then, because interestingly at verse 4, there's an emphasis on Christ's burial. Why would that be, you think? I see that the gospel message is very clear that Jesus didn't just die some spiritual death, but that he had an actual real death. You can't bury a spirit, but you, you do bury a body. 
And the Lord's burial is proof that he actually died. And this will make more sense when we go on and the apostle here lists a number of people who witnessed his resurrection as well. But Jesus didn't merely get sick and then knock on death's door. He didn't have some early COVID-19 or something like that, if it's okay to even make that joke right now with so many people being sick. He, he, he actually died. That's the point. So dead that he was buried. He was enclosed in the earth in a tomb. But he doesn't stay there, does he, church? He was raised on the third day. There are only two miracles, which all four of the Gospels mention. It's the feeding of the, of the crowd with the, the loaves of bread and the fishes, and then it's the resurrection. The resurrection is a key part of the gospel, so much so that if it didn't happen, we don't even have a gospel. It's not a made-up myth, and the next few verses are actually going to provide testimony to the veracity of that statement. But we still need to consider that phrase according to the scriptures because it's important. Both the death of Christ for our sins and his resurrection happened according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures. Well, what does that mean? What scriptures? The New Testament? No, not the New Testament. All, none of, not all of the New Testament books were in circulation by the time the Apostle Paul is dealing with this issue in Corinth. So what he's referring to here is the Old Testament scriptures. And so twice he refers to the law and the prophets, to the Old Testament. Did the holy writings of the Old Testament talk about the, Beth, or the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Oh, yes, they did. Let's look at Luke 24. Turn your Bible back to Luke chapter 24. It's towards the very end of Luke. Here, our resurrected Lord is on the road to Emmaus and with some of his confused followers who are in deep depression. They're sad because their Lord was crucified and seemingly they forgot that he had promised to rebuild the temple in three days. And so look at what we read in 25 to 27. He said to them, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow to hear, to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Some of it, these things that he was telling them were direct prophecy, I'm sure. Some of it was type and shadow, but all of it points to the redemption that Christ made in his death and resurrection. He could have started in Genesis 3 with the curse of the serpent and the promise of the seed of the woman. He could have went to Leviticus 16 with the Day of Atonement that we mentioned just a moment ago. It's a picture, a picture of substitutionary atonement. He could have gone to Psalm 22 to describe the details of the crucifixion and the very words that Jesus would say on the cross. Surely he could have gone to Isaiah 53, the servant song, where we read about the lamb who was crucified for sinners, who was wounded for our transgressions, who was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace has fallen upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. He could have went to Numbers 21, where the serpent is lifted up on a pole and all who look to him will live similarly like Christ is lifted up on a cross and all who look to him will live. The Old Testament scriptures are replete with these kinds of things. Every single Old Testament book tells of Christ and the work he would do. And friends, that of course means something. It means that the Old Testament is useful for you. It's important to you. It's just as important to you as the New Testament is. We shouldn't neglect it. I think Pastor Nick shared that meme a couple weeks ago about the train hitting your Bible study in Leviticus. 
and, and just and, and stopping it. Well, keep plugging on. The Old Testament reveals Christ. We should read it with an eye opened by and looking to Christ because it's about him. It testifies of him, who he is and what he would do, especially his death for our sins and the resurrection. And when we get to the New Testament, Jesus actually takes these two great themes of the Old Testament, his death and his resurrection, and he gives them to the church in the way of two sacraments or two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, so that every time we partake of these, we can think of these two great truths. The, the death and the resurrection of the Lord. Baptism tells of the resurrection. When an individual gets baptized, it is a declaration of the promise of God to raise a new believer in Christ. And the Lord's Supper, of course, tells of his death. The sacraments or the ordinances, these aren't divorced or separated from the gospel. They are telling parts of the gospel. The, they are essential gospel elements that the apostle mentions in 1 Corinthians 15. They are demonstrations of the gospel, are proclamations of the gospel for our ears and for our eyes. And this morning we're going to observe the Lord's Supper together. Church, uh, one way that God in his, specific, in his perfect wisdom has provided for us a way to keep our focus on Christ and his cross and to remember the gospel is through the regular observing of the Lord's Supper. We're reminded here of why it is we need Christ as Lord and Savior. We're reminded and we proclaim his death every time he does it, which again is a key part of the gospel message. Now this ordinance is not for everyone. It's only for those who, as the apostle explained in verse 2, have received the gospel, are standing in the gospel, and are being saved by the gospel. And that's because this table that we participate in, it is representative of the covenant of grace which we are saved by. It is only for people who have union with Christ. It is only for people who have made a credible profession of faith. Now, you don't have to be a member in covenant with this local church to participate this morning, but you do have to be a part of, a, of the church, generally speaking. You have to be one who has converted and was saved and has been recognized as a believer through a public baptism. In other words, it's only for those who have been baptized into Christ through faith. You don't have to be without sin in your life this morning to partake of the Lord's Supper. If that, if that was the case, none of us would be able to participate. Perhaps you're even struggling with a sin this morning that you've been praying for and you just can't break from it. If that's the case, you're st and you are trusting Christ, you are invited this morning to partake of the Lord's table in the hopes that even doing so will be a means of grace in which God will supply mercy and grace to help you overcome that sin that's in your life. Because if you're struggling against a sin, that means you hate it, right? That means you don't enjoy it and you don't want to do it. So you go to the table this morning knowing that it is your sin that made, you, that made Christ's death necessary and you pray for grace to put that sin to death and every sin to death. In other words, the only reason you wouldn't partake of the Lord's Supper this morning is if you're not yet saved. If you haven't repented of your sins and received Christ as Lord and Savior. If you don't yet personally know that love in which with he has loved his saints. And maybe you haven't uh, been baptized after receiving Christ as well. Maybe that is the case for some of us in here. And you need to ask yourself at that point, well, why haven't I been baptized? Is the reason a lack of true faith? Is the reason a lack of, or is the reason a belief that has been in vain? It's not that baptism saves you, of course not. But baptism, again, is a declaration that Christ has risen and that he has raised you as well. 
And everyone who has the Spirit of Christ certainly wants baptism, if for no other reason the Lord commanded that we do it. It's for His glory. So if you're trusting Christ for salvation and you want to be baptized, but you haven't been baptized yet, you need to talk to an elder about that because participation in baptism should precede participation with the Lord's table. A quick word about the elements. The bread that we eat, it represents the body of Christ. It reminds us that God took on flesh and lived a holy life so that he could be our substitute on the cross. True man and true God there on the cross for us. The cup that we drink, it represents the blood of Christ that was shed for us. Life is in the blood we read in Scripture. Remember, the wages of sin is death. And Christ stood in that place and his body was broken and his blood was spilled. And that blood washes away our sins so that we may be clothed with his righteousness. These elements aren't the literal body and blood of Christ. They represent him. And our taking of them in faith this morning is a means of grace in which we are blessed in participating in this covenant meal. So in a moment, we'll do what every Christian can do, and that is prayerfully examine our hearts before we participate with the ordinance today. And let me explain what that is. When we spend time individually praying, we're just communing with our God and Savior. You're not that time trying to search out your heart for every single sin that exists. There's not enough time for it. And there are sins in your life that you just simply aren't aware of. But what you're doing at that time is you're remembering the gospel. You're remembering the importance of the gospel and that it is Christ's life, death, and resurrection that makes it so that you can partake of all the gospel benefits. And so you're able to come up to this table this morning with confidence, knowing that Christ is your Lord and he is your Savior and that he is the one that you need. So what we'll do is we'll take that time of prayer now, about 60 seconds or so. And then after that 60 seconds, time is up in which we uh, pray to the Lord and search our hearts and repent of sin if we know of it as well. We'll thank, um, after about six seconds, I'll thank the Lord and um, pray a blessing over the cup and the bread as well, too. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the time to seriously contemplate our union with you, even though it was brief, only a matter of a minute. But we ask, Lord God, that you would impress upon us a great dependency in you for all things, that you would help us to always remember the gospel, and that you would make our sin aware to us, that we may repent from it and glorify you in doing so. We do pray for the salvation of everyone who is in this room and our family members as well who aren't here. And may you be exalted for the work of salvation in you alone. And we thank you for giving to us this bread, which represents your body that was broken there upon the cross. Jesus, you were true man and at the same time true God, totally unique, different than any person who has ever existed. And so we thank you for going to the cross as a substitute in our place and taking the wrath that we deserve so that our sins could be, as it were, removed from us, so that we would be seen with your righteousness. And we thank you for the cup, which represents your blood that was spilled. And we pray, Lord, that you remind us that because of who you are, we can have full satisfaction and confidence in knowing that we are saved because of who you are and what it is that you have done, Jesus. Help us to know you more and to trust you more and to love you more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.